0: Thank you. Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, where we focus on expert interviews to explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. This is Dr. Kara King, and we are back with part two of Dr. Cecile Ferrando's riveting conversation. If you missed the first half of her interview, be sure to check out last week's episode. You will not be disappointed. In part two, we are gonna pick up right where we left off, And tackle the difficult topics of coping with as well as reflecting on surgical complications, how being a female in the operating room can have unique challenges, and how Cecile has taken her surgical practice to the next level through innovation. We hope you enjoy. You know, I have no idea if this is good or bad, but when I've had complications, I give myself 24 hours to like think about it and talk about it and do all those things mentally, and then you're exactly right, then it has to go to a different place. And it's not that I'm not learning from it and I'm not still you know, keeping that patient obviously at the forefront of my mind, but I agree with compartmentalizing that a little bit, but also allowing yourself space and time to reflect and do whatever you need to do to process it, whether it be talking it out or whatever it may be, journaling, whatever it may be, but allowing yourself space to, to process all the emotions that go along
1: with that as well. There's that space and within that space often comes like forgiveness for your, you know, you have to forgive yourself. Like nothing is ever intentional, right? And obviously you have to look back and self-reflect if you're starting to have a lot of complications in a short amount of time. Right. And you have to think to yourself, is it because I'm doing too much surgery? Am I, you know, burning myself out? Am I not focused? Am I taking on cases that I'm not ready to take on yet? Do I need extra mentorship? you know, you of all people know about coaching, right? And I that- You should mention that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Little plug <laughs> uh, for coaching. Thank you. But I think that also we don't always real, we, we sometimes have to humble ourselves to know that sometimes even in our adult lives and our practices that things like coaching and extra mentorship, and I recognize the two things are very different. Thank you. You've listened <laughs> to my multiple lectures about this.
0: <laughs> <I> love you. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um But I think that, you know, I've thought there's a few things, for instance, that I know, you know, in FPMRS that I sort of have wanted to do or I'm, you know, and you get to a certain point and you're like, wow, I can do a, you know, gender affirmation surgery. I can do vaginoplasty. It's something and I think it's weird that I'm going to ask them to come scrub and do a couple of these, you know, laparoscopic retropubic cases because I want to get better at this, right? And so, you know, and I've asked urology if I can join them to do a few things because, they do things a little bit differently and it's it's good to become a learner again and to have that humility and so i think you have to sort of think about your complications and you have to be humble enough to recognize is this just i could have done something differently and i will next time or this just happened and i hope it doesn't happen again or it's now been happening and i need to revisit this and you know don't wait for somebody from qi to come to you and say you've had you know three of this in the last 2 months I think when you're really good, you have insight and you have the ability to analyze your sort of own skill set. And this happens sometimes, you know, I had this interesting conversation with Mark Walters about this, about sort of older surgeons, right? Like we think that older surgeons, and I'm not going to define what older means because I'm not going to offend you know, some of our <laughs> for no. some of our listeners, because that's not what this is about. But as you get older, there's been data that show that older surgeons are not as good, right? Um, there is a peak, right? And at some point, you have to sort of be very self aware of this. You have to. You may have been at your you know, at the top, one of the best surgeons, whether it's in the country or the world and the most innovative surgeon and the busiest surgeon and, you know, whatever, you know, whatever um, adjective you want to sort of put there as, you know, but if you're starting to have certain things happen or your patients aren't going home as fast as they were, as as fast as they were, you know, whatever marker you use to sort of look at your surgical success, it's time to reevaluate it. So when you're young, it's okay to have complications just you know be aware of them and know, learn how to process them and if they're trending do something about them and find somebody to help you. And then if you're old, <laughs> get out of the game. No, I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying, I think it's an interesting thing. I think we're surrounded, you know, by, you know, we have so many we have so many mentors and I think it's an interesting topic. When do we peak? When are we at our best? When should we get extra mentorship? Should we go back when we get to a certain point and relearn again? You know, all of that has to do with humility and humility is hard. I think it's hard. And technology
0: right. changes, right? Yeah. So just yeah. like you're mentioning like top in your top in your field 15 years ago may look very different than what it looks like today.
1: So Well, I really mean, I point. don't know. I mean, I'm 38 years old and I didn't train that long ago and you know, residency. I graduated residency in 2012 and my fellow wanted to do a hysteroscopy and they brought out this uh, this like equipment and was I there. I that mean, day? I didn't even know how to turn on the, <laughs> the machine. And so I think <laughs> right. I mean I think that's like one of those things about knowing your limitations. It doesn't matter how simple a skill is for one person. If you don't know how to do it and you haven't done it in a while, it's important to I think go back and, and learn that kind of stuff. And
0: the only other point I want to make about this is that the second victim is real. And so if you have a complication and you are an attending or staff, I I always encourage you to check in with your resident or your fellow and see how they're doing because they're probably emotionally feeling that complication as well. So touching base with your learners is really important.
1: Yeah. It's a combination of of being a leader in the operating room when that stuff is happening, right? You can't fall apart. You have to make a decision. You have to decide when to move on in a case, when to convert, when to fix something and how to do it swiftly. And you can't sort of but it's okay after the case to show them how difficult that was for you, right? And then to ask them how they're doing. I think that we role model behavior, and I think allowing uh, the trainees that are with you to process as well is really important. Just because it's your patient doesn't mean that, you know, you have to remember from the trainee perspective. Depending upon sort of the case, you know, for my trainees, if there's an intraoperative event, you know, they probably did it, honestly, because most of my trainees are the ones doing the, the, you know, the surgery and I'm assisting. But the truth of it is, though, they're an extension of me, right? They're only doing where telling them, you know, they're cutting where I'm telling them to cut, they're dissecting where I'm telling them to dissect, but they still sort of internalize that. And there's this mix of empathy for the patient they, you know, may have had an event with, and then let's be honest. There's also that feeling, a bit of shame for not having been as good as they wanted to be in front of their teacher and mentor, and that can be very devastating. It can be paralyzing for a trainee. It can make them feel like they don't want to get back on the horse. And you know, and while it should be about the patient, right. you know, first and foremost, trainees suffer also. So I agree with you, um, and they need to know that um, they need to be reminded that you know. It's, it's okay to feel the way that they feel, but that you still trust them to continue exactly. operating on your patients.
0: And I see this often in, in fellows or residents who are about to graduate. You know, like let's say the last three months, if a complication happens, I feel like it hits them hardest because I, I envision them thinking that they're gonna be out in a couple of months. And I, I feel like those are the trainings that you have to give a little bit of extra support to and,
1: and love to and, and just have them understand that this happens to all of us. Agree. I think you just it can happen at any time. So you can go five years into your practice with nothing significant, right? So you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Yeah. And then something happened, right? And it's because we we have adverse event rates. I know this. I've published on a lot of it in Euroguide. Yes. I I know what the adverse events are in large cohorts of patients undergoing these surgeries. They exist, whether it's one in a thousand or one in three hundred. Those seems like those seem like really low incidences, right? But there is that one, right? So after three hundred patients, one of this is going to happen. After a thousand, one of this is going to happen. So if you're doing a lot of surgery, that one is going to come. So the best thing you can do is actually prepare yourself for it. You know, I don't mean catastrophize every case, and but think about how you're going to get yourself out of situations, and just know that it's okay. It happens, and um, figure out a way of coping while still remaining a really good doctor.
0: Okay, I want to talk a bit about being a female in this field. Mm. So I just wanna talk to you about like kind of my experience and I wanna compare it to your experience and just get your insight on this. So I feel like women are often expected to act a specific way or talk in a certain way. And I think it even goes down to like emails, like respond to an email in a certain way, right? I know that sounds maybe ridiculous, but there's plenty of times that I've actually gone back and like rewrote an email and put a smiley face somewhere where I like normally would not have put a smiley face as I feel like our genders really kind of shape the way we're expected to respond to certain questions or people. And you know, you and I are East Coasters, which means we have, Maybe a little bit of a specific way about ourselves. The edge. The East Coast edge. The East Coast edge, which I personally <laughs> adore. <laughs> but the Midwestern people that I hang out with, they'll yeah. always adore it. Yeah. Talk
1: to me about your experience. Do you feel that? Well, I mean, yes. I think that. I want, before before I answer that question directly, I want, it's funny, There's a, there's been so much um, talk and sort of buzz about, you know, being a woman in medicine and, you know, he for she and she for she and, you know, <laughs> is, it, is she for she a hashtag or is it just he it, for she? It really
0: should. Be. She, the, she, she should for she be. should
1: be. Yeah, she for she should be a hashtag. Right? Because, yes. How many <laughs> women aren't she for she? I don't um, some, well, I don't, anyway, that's a different podcast, <laughs> that's a different podcast. <laughs> but, um, we live in this era where women are sort of really being brought to the fore forefront and sort of, you know, um, and given opportunities and it's interesting and I might get a lot of pushback for this. I have a lot of mixed feelings about it only because I, I, in my purse personally, I've never experienced feeling like I've never gotten anything because of being a woman. I've never had that feeling, but I certainly have. Um, friends and colleagues who have um, have told stories and maybe it's very possible that I've always been very oblivious to it and I haven't cared and maybe I haven't internalized it at all. But so in terms of, you know, professional development and being treated a certain way by my peers and my and my um, superiors, I've never felt anything that's that was threatening or that prevented me from getting somewhere because I'm a woman. But um, I do agree that there's a bit of a double standard, especially with women's surgeons. And it's something that I'm actually very sensitive to because I'm, I mean, self-admittedly, I'll, I'll just, you know, tell, again, our seven listeners, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell our seven listeners about my personality and shed insight into who I am. And anybody who personally knows me is going to laugh when I say this because the, the good news is I have a lot of insight into my, myself and my behaviors. So I think that's what insightful people say, or people who are I may be, or not insightful, insightful, kidding. right? Let's <laughs> yeah. say I have a lot of insight, so but I have a high pain tolerance. You're like, oh right. crap! I sometimes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I I don't feel pain. Oh boy! Okay, here we go. <laughs> they need a tap block. <laughs> um, <laughs> they need a tap block. Uh, so I have always been the type of person who sort of, you know, I like to assert myself and I sort of want, I like things to be just right. If you ask one of my fellows, what are they deathly afraid of? Is the patient not being in the room at 7:29 a.m. one minute before we're supposed to start? Because I don't want to not I don't want to miss the anesthesiologist and be the second start, you know, in, in case for like induction. It drives me crazy. My fellow almost lost his life on your rotation when that that's happened. True. Just so you know, that's true. He was very sad when he didn't bring the room at, the patient in at seven. And I sort of carry myself. You know, I get sort of like, why isn't the patient in? In you know, in the room and. And sometimes I do feel that if I had a Y chromosome, people would be sort of not see it as me being, oh, she must be. There's always like an excuse for why I want things to start on time and I'm stern about it. It must be that she's in a bad mood today. It must be something else, right? She must have broken up with her boyfriend, right? Something sort of very personal that has nothing to do with why I very sort of directly am stating that I would prefer the patient to be in the room when I start and it's it's interesting but the very sort of the thing that I've recognized in myself is 20 minutes later as we're setting up, I find myself apologizing to everybody mm-hmm. in the room mm-hmm. for being so like harsh or stern about desiring that so strongly mm-hmm. when in no way was I derogatory or punitive to anybody in the room. I just walked in and said, I'm frustrated that we're not starting. And I feel apologetic about not walking in and having the OR be a party at 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> it's very funny, right? I feel like I need to be a certain way to have everybody wants to work with me and to, you know, like me and Mm -hmm. to want to be liked. And I don't know if that's a female thing or if there's this double standard, but I do feel that if I came in in the morning and I had, and I was, you know, a male surgeon and I just said, Hey, we need to get started. It would just happen. And nobody would question where that was coming from. And that I always have, I need to be a certain way in order for people around me to sort of want to be in my operating room. And I try really hard to create that environment. And I feel like I backtrack when I feel frustrated about something and I assert myself. And I've I've really tried to work through that because none of those sort of little behaviors are good. You know, first I've thought, can I come into the operating room in a more calm fashion Mm and request that my patient be? And then I've thought back and I said, well, wait, I never sort of... I am calm. I'm just right. stern about it, right? right. Mm-hmm. And I'm 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 letting it be known that we're not going to have a laxadaisical sort of experience that day, and we're going to really, you know, abide by what we're supposed to be doing, which is having on time first starts. So you know, I've thought a lot about it, and I, that's the one situ- situation that bugs me a lot. Yeah, because it, it's it's a recurring theme, and I think we need to stop apologizing. Yes. That, that's like what it is. We need to stop. And what's funny is I am sort of the pot calling the kettle black and that when I have young female trainees with me in the operating room, you know, I'll something as silly as me telling the medical student to just move a little bit over to the left and they're like, I'm sorry. Yes. We'll say, or or they'll bump, I'm sorry. Or they'll, sometimes yes. residents will say they're sorry and there was nothing, there was not even, there's nothing ever to be sorry about, but it's, it's a very bizarre reaction and unfortunately, I find that it's mostly our female residents or our female students who say that. And so I very sort of you know say don't you know, don't don't say you're sorry. I'll give you know I always joke and say, you want me to give you something to be sorry about. I yeah. will if you want me to, but stop saying that. it's sort of very it's diminishing, yes. And then I think back and I'm like, wow, that's exactly what I do, yeah, when I feel like I've maybe been too demanding as a surgeon, yeah, and so, yes, I think that there's but i I'm, i don't know if the double standard really exists or if we've created it for ourselves too or whether it's a chicken and egg or if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy i haven't gotten that far in my deep thoughts about this to figure that out and so i don't i don't know but i know that i've had that experience
0: it's funny because you and i actually haven't talked about this mm really in that much of detail about sorry's in the OR. yeah, And that is the thing that gets me so much is when my learners say they're sorry, it bothers me because you're exactly right. It's diminishing. There's nothing to be sorry about. This is a learning environment. And when you start listening for it, it's like so prevalent. And it's almost always with our female trainees, Mm -hmm. residents and fellows. And so I've actually made it a really big point. And if any of our residents listen to this, they know I do this in that, I um, make a code word that when they say, I'm sorry, I say a word, whether it be like Velcro or carrot or asparagus, whatever it is, every time they say, they say, I'm sorry, I'm like Velcro, stop. Like they have to stop that habit. And I think that automatically helps build confidence. Like as soon as you say you're sorry, you're putting yourself into this position that I don't know what it is. Is it more vulnerable? Is it less confident? I don't know what exactly what it is, but
1: I feel like just, just by stopping saying I'm sorry is actually really powerful yeah I mean I like the idea of saying some sort of like you know code word to see how often you say it perhaps my I'll give you something to be sorry about is maybe not the most constructive <laughs> way of dealing with it but I do use it like in sarcasm like I mean do you want me to really give you something to be sorry about because why do you, why are you sorry about like moving the foley catheter over a millimeter while I was like putting of my hand at, you know it's a it's funny but yes it's uh that's the one thing that drives me crazy but I, it made me realize that I was not... I don't say I'm sorry all the time, but there's something that I, I'm constantly apologizing yeah. for. And I'm realizing that I'm apologizing for behavior that is um, actually totally fine. And I know that. It yes. is, there's nothing wrong about wanting, as a surgeon, about wanting things to be such, Efficient right? Efficient and exactly. safe. That's what you're and going for. And if you for. do it while respecting your team and thanking your team and appreciating your team... It is fine. And it's okay to be demanding because at the end of the day, we're taking care of patients. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things that I need to still get over is how do I not backtrack and apologize mm-hmm. for something just to sort of make sure the room knows that I'm still sort of that fun surgeon who, right. you know, is going to crank the music up and have a good time in the operating room while we're operating. That's actually not what's important. And that's not. The um, that's the, I don't need to be remembered that way, right? I right. need to be remembered as somebody who did really good surgery, who respected their trainees and their assistants and 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 their helpers in the operating room. And so, you know, but we're all works in progress. But yeah, no more I'm sorry's. I think that's a song. I like it.
0: T-shirt. Yeah,
1: something. I think it's a song. No she more for I'm sorry. Isn't that a song for, like by like Sade or something? <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going off the rails. I'm we need, sorry, we need more on. caffeine, we need more caffeine.
0: <laughs> Maybe we should be transitioning to wine. Fantastic. Right, is there anything else you wanna talk about? Anything else that we missed that's uh,
1: impactful for our listeners? No, I mean, we covered complications, mentors, getting started, innovation. I feel really good about this. Yeah. Maybe how you innovate surgery, but other than that, like...
0: Yeah. Let's talk about that for you. Mm -hmm. So you get out, you are getting comfortable in your procedure, right? And it feels really good to do, at least for me, to an extent to do the same thing every single time, right? You get yourself into a routine. If it's working really well, then it's easy to kind of get into that routine. At what point do you... Do you or I should say how how do you get inspired to innovate? How do you get inspired to tweak things and and take your practice to the next level?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's that usually happens when like I mean, like what you just said, when you get really comfortable. So once you start doing things so routinely and you can teach them so easily, is the time to try uh, different things and innovations means different things to different people right so innovation can mean trying new new devices right a new way to anchor the sacrospinous ligament a new device to do that a new type of cautery device etc right that's innovation innovation in itself using something that is meant to be used for something else you know, for, for something, you know, I mean, my fellows think I'm brilliant that I use the suction irrigator now to backfill the bladder, Dr. King. Ooh. And I have to credit you each time. You are welcome. Um, do I you mean, love it? I do love it. Feels so good it's, every time. <laughs> it Party trick. But what's funny, right? Is like, it's interesting. Well, that seems like such a silly thing. It's a small innovation, innovation, and may, maybe thousands of people do it, but you're innovating within your own surgery and your practice. And innovation can mean taking something that used to take 4 minutes to set up like a backfill system to doing something that takes 30 seconds and if you're going to backfill 4 times during a surgery you've now shaved 10 minutes off of your surgery mm-hmm. right so there's an innovation in that everybody thinks innovation needs to be extraordinary like you've you've created something you have to get a patent on it and now you're selling it that's not what innovation is how do you actually make your surgery you know better more efficient more effective by using the things around you and by making your tools better right so um, I, I think it takes getting to, again, being so comfortable that now you can push yourself a little bit. You can try to do something a little bit differently. For me, it comes in the form of re- reconstructive surgery. Mm-hmm. So now I really understand the, the vulvar tissues and what it, how flaps heal properly. So I know that if I mobilize a flap in one direction, it's probably, it may necrose because of the blood supply. But I know when I can take a risk to try to get a a better cosmetic appearance. And so that's the way sort of what what innovation has meant to me is really with vulvar reconstruction, pushing it to make my reconstructions look more and more uh, feminine and more functional and more cosmetically appealing. And so, you know, I started with a basic way of doing the, you know, the vaginoplasty surgery. I did it exactly the way that I was taught. So I think a good sort of parallel to that is I always tell my senior fellows as they're graduating, do the surgeries exactly the way you were taught. Mm-hmm. And you know. And now if you learn from six different people, pick the styles that you liked, write them down. And when you start your surgery, use everything that you learned, but don't try to sort of innovate right away. Mm-hmm. And then when things start getting really easy and you're efficient and you're doing it in a very timely way and your outcomes are good, that's when you can start thinking to yourself, You know, how can I make these surgeries better? And it should actually come organically. For me, anything has always happened in the operating room. And then I've sort of taken it out of the operating room and thought about it and reflected on it. I I write everything down. I have journals that I keep everything in. And I draw pictures. I mean, given what I do for a living, some of those pictures can be... You know, nobody wants to go through my journal. Yeah. <laughs> well, they do, but for different reasons. Right. <laughs> for different reasons. <laughs> I have a combination of, you know, male naked parts and female naked parts in there. But I, I, I redraw them and then I list out how I might do something differently. And then I, you know, take a picture of it or a mental picture. And then I try to reproduce it again. And that's innovating too. So I think, again, innovation comes in lots of different sh- shapes and sizes and forms and ways and Different meanings, but I think that that's when I, you know, we were talking earlier about when do you reach your peak and then when you start to fall off your peak. And I suspect that you should reevaluate when you stop innovating or you stop being interested in innovation. Yeah. Um, when that's no longer interesting to you or important to you, then I think it's time to reevaluate your surgical practice because I think the best of the best are always trying to be better, mm-hmm. which is what innovation is. Mm-hmm. You know. So that's that's my two cents on that.
0: I love it. And, you know, I am so fascinated by this idea of creativity in the OR. You yeah. know, Ted Lee, my mentor from McGee, always talked about this triangle where there's knowledge on the bottom and then technique and then creativity at the top. And creativity is really what I think takes you from, you know, a mediocre level to being an expert. And one interesting way you mentioned it when you said, you know, backfill the bladder, Probably because you were with me at one point and you saw me do it is just getting out of your subspecialty sometimes, right? Like either watching videos or getting in the OR with gen surge or vascular or some other some other group and just seeing different instruments and different techniques. I also love to include other brains in the OR. So for instance, um, there's been multiple times where I'm having difficulty with something like bagging my three thousand gram uterus. I'm like, God, this is such a struggle. Anesthesia, well, they don't like when they're called anesthesia, doctor, whatever. <laughs> (laughs) look look at me, how can I make this better? Or the medical student, look at me, how can I make this better? Sometimes just having someone's brain that doesn't do it every day can give you an entire new perspective.
1: Have you found that? No, I have. And I think that... um it's it's funny. I'm one of the things that I do especially during laparoscopic cases, during vaginal cases is a little bit harder cuz we're all facing the same, you know, direction in a very small space, but during laparoscopy, especially during tough cases, I I give myself moments to look at everybody's eyes.
0: Yes. And
1: I mean, I don't know, I think Sometimes I've seen this and that's surgeons, primary surgeons don't read the room, literally. And so if everybody is sort of feeling uncomfortable or tense or questioning, right? And you can see that we're all masked up, but we can see it in people's eyes. It's important to ask them what they're thinking. Yes. So, you know, and if you, you know, you've seen residents and said how that case go and they were like, oh, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe if they had been asked during that case, Maybe they wouldn't have had an answer, but just the fact that they were questioning or wondering would have made you take a step back and think there was a better way to approach it. Right. So and you know, and a good scrub tech watches your surgery, right? Yes. And a good scrub tech who's been around has seen a lot of surgery. Yes. Right. And I think it's okay, you know, I think somebody I this happened recently. I had a really tough I don't do, you know, a ton of uh, laparoscopy for unusual pelvic disease you know as a as a FPMRS provider most of my pelvises are healthy yes. um, and just need reconstruction but you know i decided to take on i think i talked to you about this case but i decided to take on a patient who had had like three leaps and had no cervix yes and i she had been a patient of mine for other reasons and so i took her on and it dawned on me that you know I was gonna have a hard time manipulating that uterus, and that's something that sort of makes folks really or in, in onc folks who do hist for leap patients for you you hardly ever probably you, you know it you you use the technique that you use for those kinds of patients and so for me I just asked the room you know how does Rob D Bernardo who's our one of our oncologists do this case when it's like this and somebody said oh he uses this McCartney really interesting. Tube. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> there I said this yeah. tube he uses a tube right the spe- the specimen tube what is it called again McCartney tube a McCartney tube right yeah. that they use to remove, extract specimens after they've actually done their their surgery to not spread sort of the specimen around in the pelvis. Mm-hmm. And so we put it and I said, let me see that. And I said, okay. And, you know, and then I said, well, you know, just to be on the safe side, he's next door. So just have him to come in to show me, you know, it's also, you have to be careful using new things and taking people up on their suggestions if you've never yeah. done it before, because that's how accidents happen. Yeah, But it was brilliant. And we got the case done so effectively and doing something I had never done before. And part of it is I wasn't embarrassed to ask him to come in and show me how to use this, you know, variation on a manipulator. Yeah, and that's like getting your out of the way of your like own ego to mm-hmm. be able to sort of ask for help. Listen, I know I'm a good surgeon and I'm a talented surgeon and I'm a good you know patient caretaker, but sometimes we come up with it we we. It, we are faced with things that are challenging and difficult and you should ask. And it started with me asking the scrub tech, what do other people do when this happens?
0: Yes. Um,
1: And he said, well, maybe the McCartney tube would be a good idea, right? And so, and if he hadn't done that, it would have been really challenging. Mm -hmm. So, but I think it's as easy also as asking the trainees in the room too. Said, has anybody ever seen? You know, I've said it. Has anybody seen Dr. Parezo, you know, or Dr. Props, who's one of my partners, do anything differently when this is like hard? And they've given me advice, and I've said, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. And you know what? You then call your partner or your colleague, and you say, hey, my trainees or the scrub, you know, tech or the circulator, told me to do it this way,
0: mm-hmm. and it was
1: great. That's a great idea. You're a genius. You're a genius. <laughs> And I think it's it's good to be that way, otherwise you never learn and you never sort of, you know. So yes, yeah. and so thank you for your uh, bladder backfill uh, innovation. It it has changed my Sacrocobalpexase.
0: I didn't even know that I did that, so thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. So I think you make two good points. Number one, creating an atmosphere that everyone feels comfortable and safe and that they can talk with you about different different creative solutions. So I think that's one thing that's really important. The second thing, and I don't mean to bring this up every single podcast, I'm sorry everyone who listens, but surgical coaching. So how often do you actually review videos with another surgeon though? Like Mm -hmm. that can be so powerful. And I actually really love having a coach that's outside my field because they actually view your videos with such a new lens and such curiosity that I've made some really impactful changes to my practice based on that feedback, just that space for
1: reflection Mm -hmm. and that active like guided inquiry on my cases. I think that's great. And I've talked to you about, you know. The coaching and I know what the curriculum is and I think it's important um, I I never have personally had somebody review some of my cases outside of my field but I think it's a great idea because I have had the experience so as FpmRS, Providers. Some of us operate with colorectal surgery. We do combined cases. So very common surgeries are combined sacrocolpopexy, rectopexy, where we're pretty much usually we're in the room operating with each other and we're watching each other. And so I've learned a lot from our colorectal surgeons over the years, both in conventional laparoscopy and robotics. Although I don't do much robotics anymore, but I learned a lot of very interesting sort of techniques. And um, what was very helpful, I, again, I had very strong personal relationships with some of the surgeons that I operated with who also knew me as a fellow, so they sort of still took on sort of a mentorship role when we were operating together as colleagues, give me a lot of pointers and advice. And it came from their training from general surgery and colorectal surgery and i've been able to sort of employ some of the things that they've taught me so having had that positive experience i think that bringing cases to outside you know outside to surgeons outside of your discipline would probably be very helpful cuz it's never been you know anything but in real life in real life you know in real time
0: yeah with you saying that I want to put a plug in for your Society of Gynecologic Surgeons is it a postgrad course or a multidisciplinary course tell me about that
1: Oh, um, so we wanted to keep in line. We felt, you know, us at the Cleveland Clinic, when we were reading the description of sort of the theme for SGS, which is working in teams and having sort of taking a multidisciplinary approach to patient care, it dawned on me that at Cleveland Clinic, we do so much of it. We really work as teams. We work outside of, you know, we call our, you know, what most people call departments or institutes at Cleveland Clinic, but between obstetrics and gynecology, general surgery, colorectal surgery, urology, but then lots of other sort of, you know, mental, and behavioral health and plastic and reconstructive surgery and I mean I could the list goes on and on in terms of how we collaborate with with outside folks I feel like I've trained in that model and I said we should bring this to SGS and sort of Give them a sense of what we're doing, and so I submitted as a workshop, and I think we're presenting it as an actual. I don't know. I I don't know if it's a post grad course, but it's part of the regular curriculum. So I think it's on the Tuesday. Fantastic. Of, yeah. Of, of SGS, hopefully you know, hopefully we'll, some of us will see each other there in Palm Springs. If not, we'll see each other on the on the Zoom. But uh, we're, a few of us from Cleveland Clinic are basically presenting on how do we integrate specialists um, outside of gynecology into our gynecologic practices. So we're talking about urology, colorectal surgery, plastic surgery, and um, incorporating also general OBGYN into reconstructive surgery. How do we deal with peripartum cases? Sort of you know how gynecologists cannot be standalone. we can't be in silos and so I think we're going to have a really interesting course I have some really Tracy Hall from colorectal surgery and Sarah Vogler are joining us Roselle Johan from plastic surgery uh, Sandy Vasavada from urology and then um, as urogynecologist Katie Props um, Fifi Parizo, and myself will be there so I'm very excited I hope um, uh, people are interested in it and I hope we have a good course I foresee that we that we will
0: that's brilliant. Those names are all the best at the clinic. That's a brilliant idea. You're I'm a per- genius again. <laughs> I'm
1: pretty excited about <laughs> it. So, and I'm really thankful to um, uh, Megan Shim for having and Miles Murphy for really having pushed us to do and and received it well. You know, when we set, submitted it, we thought could be an interesting workshop, but they're featuring it in a way that I I was I'm super pleased about and um, really proud of. So, I'm thankful uh, to them as well and the entire committee.
0: Fantastic. I love it. Well, Cecile, thank you so much for giving us your time this Friday evening. I have absolutely loved hanging out in your living room, chatting it up. So thank you so much.
1: It was a, a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm really thankful for SGS for having this podcast. I think it's enlightening and it's nice for us to be able to learn from each other and to to hear each other's voices. And so thank you. Thank <laughs> you
0: is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.